This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. It just makes sense that there are government acts to prevent cruelty to children. But you may be surprised that in some countries, acts preventing cruelty to animals came first. Tanya Farrelly has written about a little of both in her historical fiction book, The Eighth Wonder. Welcome, Tanya. Thanks for having me, Jan. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we first meet Ethan Salt as a young boy. He's running away to join the circus, but what's he running away from? Yeah, so in the late 1800s, there was a call for orphan children to be packed up and sent out west to old Mars and Pars who needed an extra set of hands. So Ethan was one such orphan. He was put on to what they called the orphan train, which was done in the best, I suppose, in the best intentions by the Astors, but the Astors also owned all of the tenements in the Lower East Side. They were furnishing the farmhands out west with children, some of whom who were, you know, dearly wanted as sons and daughters, but some of whom were just simply uh, an extra set of hands, no matter how small. And this was all happening around 1884 in New York. 200,000 children, absolutely phenomenal. Well, he's leaving a good friend and Jacob's Russian family, but taking his pet dog, Honey. What was the ruckus the dog caused on the Brooklyn Bridge? So Honey interrupted a parade of elephants across, 21 elephants across the bridge, including old Jumbo. So this is fact. This actually happened in 1884 after the Brooklyn Bridge had been around about a year. People were stopping from using it because they were panicking about whether it was safe. You've got to remember this is a 1.8-kilometre uh, bridge spanning the East River that had never been seen in the world's history, something like this newfangled engineering. People were frightened to walk over it with all the trains and the carts and the pulleys. So it was almost its own white elephant until they came up with this wonderful idea of proving its safety by parading 21 elephants across the Brooklyn Bridge. Honey, being in the middle of it as a little dog, senses something uh, amiss when the little uh, baby elephant Lily stops to ponder the crowd and she runs out onto the bridge and causes all mayhem. And this is where Ethan meets a young girl who pacifies one of the elephants with an apple. And it's that meeting is paramount to the story. Ethan does get a job in the circus and loves looking after the animals. But with small, nimble fingers, he has a side profession. What's that? So the side profession at the circus obviously was what they were calling cut pursing. There was a band of pickpockets and the children would be put underneath the bleachers in the circus tent and they'd be um, helping themselves and fossicking in amongst uh, unattended handbags and pockets. And even to the point that they had, um, when they came into town on a Monday and all the families would come along and line the the train sidings to cheer the circus into town. The roustabouts would run to the, run into town and help themselves to whatever was on the washing lines. Oh. Of the so these little known facts about what the circus life was really about and a lot of these goodies were then on sold to jewellers. So much of this detail didn't even make it into the book. This is how well researched it is. The book. 13 years later, and Amberly Rose Kingsbury-Smith mm. also has a pet dog. She was the one that met Ethan on the bridge. She's given this small dog such a big name, Emily 
Roebling. Why does the dog have that name? And Emily Roebling happened to be the daughter-in-law of the original engineer of the Brooklyn Bridge, John Roebling. John unfortunately died of tetanus through an injury sustained on the bridge and he gave the reins of the engineering role over to his son, Washington Roebling, who was Emily Roebling's husband. Washington unfortunately proceeded to get what they call caissons disease, which is equivalent of the bends from going down into the caissons under the East River and then coming up too quickly. So with the bends, he was uh, massively incapacitated. So he, assured by his wife that she was up to the task, um, took over the reins of building uh, the compl- and completing the Brooklyn Bridge. When Rose goes to the bridge as a little girl, which is in the prologue that you're referring to, her father, who's an architect, tells her that the bridge was engineered by a woman and that and so sets in train her belief in herself that she could achieve such feats. Well, Rose is an apprentice architect to her father. She's working on something rather spectacular with an art student friend, Jake. What are they designing? They're designing the uh, Central Park Conservatory. This was normal um, to have public buildings designed via competition. And, of course, um, along with Jacob, she needs to enter the competition for the conservatory under an assumed name because they would never, ever countenance a female architect at all. Jake accidentally leaves his briefcase and Rose returns it to his home. Now, this is in the Lower East Side slum area, and she despairs when she sees a horse dying on the street. And she's also shocked to see Jake's family's living condition. Yes, she is, because uh, Jacob was a Russian um, uh, immigrant, and uh, like most of the immigrants of his day, Uh, he was forced to live with his family in the Lower East Side because obviously there was, you know, language barriers and also monetary barriers. Rose is very excited about the design competition, but Rose's mother is more excited about an invitation they get to a fancy dress ball. What's the significance of this ball? From a symbolic point of view in the book is the juxtaposition between the absolute poverty of people living in the Lower East Side with the complete lavish wealth, unimaginable wealth, uh, that existed in right up the central spine of New York at the top of Fifth Avenue. And Cornelia Bradley Martin, who's mentioned in the book, is a real person. The ball is a real ball. It did actually happen on February the 10th in 1897. It was worth about $9 million in today's money. It was a staggering amount to to spend. It was a a costume party. It's where uh, Rose will be, as you say, touted as marriage material. Oh, yes. And her mother has also an idea to dress Rose in something special as, another quote, the brightest lure catches the biggest fish. So what is it that Rose is wearing? Rose is wearing a family heirloom. This is absolutely true and this is what happened on the night of the ball was, is that women came into the Waldorf and went up to the changing rooms and donned their heirlooms because they were all frightened of being one-upped by the next Mrs Astor or Mrs Vanderbilt. 
And, um, and it was very important for Edith, Rose's mother, to show Rose off as marriage material. Well, Rose wasn't interested in marriage, but was interested in seeing the inside of the newly opened Waldorf Hotel and was most impressed. But it was Chet Randall, who was dressed as a king, that was most impressed with her. Who was Chet Randall? Uh, I love your expression. That's lovely. Chet, he's a manufacturing magnate. He has uh, inherited his wealth from his father and built a magnificent empire manufacturing dresses. Chet has inherited this. He's been wealthy his whole life. He is looking for a suitable bride. And so Chet, you know, has grown up with wealthy, entitled men, far too few consequences for bad Mm. behaviour and far too much power. And even Rose's own father called him a Lothario of the highest order. Now, I had to look up what a Lothario was and realised it was a man seeking affairs with women just to seduce them. Then in the crowd, there was a masked Robin Hood with the most beautiful green eyes who talks with Rose and even dances with her. After this, rather than meet the men her mother has lined up, She decides to leave. But when she gets home, what's missing? The heirloom is missing. Mm. And uh, And who better to blame than a Robin Hood? Mm. Well, indeed. Well, yes, exactly. So the police are brought in, but the choker is not found. Edith, the mother who wants her married well, and now there's the necessity of marrying money. Well, Chet comes courting. He's not Mm -hmm. used to any disinterest. So really wants to charm Rose. She's more appreciative when he insists the Central Park board listen to her architectural ideas. And then he calls on her own ability to draw up plans for his new emporium, the finest ladies apparel store the world has ever seen, part gallery, part beauty salon, part showroom. It will be the vanguard of world fashion. But what he wanted was her a son or ten, a seat with the pinnacle of Manhattan businesswomen. Do you think Amberly Rose wants any of that? Seduced somewhat by the idea of getting fast, fast tracking her dreams, I suppose. Chet is a, I guess, is a symbol of men who use many means to get what they want. And he is not short of ideas on this. And, in fact, you know, back in those days too, and this detective agency still still exists, the Pinkertons Detective Agency, um, you know, he's able to get lots of information about her likes and dislikes and is able to um, use those to his advantage. Chet has a sister who does not like Rose. No wife of my brother will be seen in the slums or with those union sympathisers. He also has a cousin, Claudette, and Rose and she share some social conscious ideas. Yeah. She's asked to design Empress House. Now, who's mm. Empress House for? Empress House is a fictionalised version of what was known as settlement houses. Settlement houses were places where well-bred women with a social conscience and intelligence had come to help better the poor to raise women and educate with the right to vote or work or choose a husband. And in that right to work comes unionism and the Mm. Seneca Falls soldiers and Mm. trap from the Russian family. Mm. But 
Who owns the company that is hardest for the unionists to deal with? Shit. Indeed. Indeed. Rose isn't the only one trying to raise social consciousness. Ethan is presenting to ASPCA. What Mm. for? So Ethan is looking for help to build a sanctuary because he has uh, left the circus. And just to backtrack on him, you know, he's a kid who who went hungry a lot and who sympathised with the plight of animals. And as he saw the sorts of brutality that went on in the circus, he decided it was unconscionable to continue there. And so he rescued as many animals as he could and started to build his menagerie at Coney Island. So he's uh, presenting to the ASPCA in order to get arms to charitable donations in order to build his sanctuary. They're more about saving beasts of burden, not dangerous animals, and lions and elephants are seen as that. Chet has organised a surprise for Rose at their engagement party, which brings Ethan and Rose together again. What is it that Rose has always loved? From the very beginning, she loved animals from Africa, particularly elephants. And her name is Daisy. And Ethan happens to be Daisy's best friend, Daisy's handler. And Chet, knowing all of this, decides that will surprise Rose with Daisy's appearance and just doesn't realise that there's another surprise coming her way. There is fireworks in more ways than one, with Rose's mother finally saying, I will not live in a poor house with a failure of a husband and a shrew for a daughter, and I will not see my name raked through the mud of Manhattan's gossip papers. I read that all of this book, and what a fun read it was, started with your research of the ill treatment of an elephant. I've always really loved American history, particularly that era, and I've always loved kind of physics and things like that because my dad was a physics teacher. I was watching a documentary about Edison and Tesla and the war between the currents, and a casualty of that war quite often was animals. And in that documentary, it posited that this elephant Topsy was put to her death for being a nuisance. Now, that's actually strictly not true. It was 1903 when Topsy died, but she was electrocuted and she was put on a stand at Coney Island and she was put to her death with copper-soled sandals because she, she actually had killed someone But when you read her story, she'd been dreadfully, dreadfully abused. My heart absolutely broke and hearing that. And I just honestly was so moved by that that I had to look into what sorts of forces, what sort of culture would let something like this happen. And so I just started to research further and further into the Gilded Age and into Topsy's life and all of this other stuff, all of the subtext the cultural clash between the rich, the poor, the men, the women, the animals, the trainers all came up and bubbled to the surface and uh, and that's where the idea came from. This is a particular genre of book that I absolutely love. You know, a really, really well-researched book that brings in so many different aspects. One of Australia's best writers in this genre is Fiona McIntosh and you did a masterclass with her. Uh, I don't think I'd be sitting here if I hadn't have done it, to be honest. So Fiona's masterclass was really my first serious go at trying to learn the craft 
um, of writing. We've always written, and I've worked in advertising for 30 years, but never anything of, of consequence in terms of uh, historical fiction, which is, which is my first love. And um, Fiona, Fiona looked at what I was writing at the time and um, said, look, you need to really get in and get your hands dirty with research. And, uh, and so that's what I did. The best of creativity and compassion and the worst of unchecked greed and entitlement are in The Eighth Wonder, our historical fiction set in the Gilded Age of New York by Tanya Farrelly. And you have to read to the end to find out what that eighth wonder is. Tanya, fantastic book. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Jan. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And now it's David's turn. The significance of travel lies not in the destination, but the discoveries made on the journey. Anthony Yark reveals just how true this is in his novel, Travelling Companions. So, Anthony, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. What is the meaning of travel? You depart, you go somewhere, you go somewhere else and then somewhere else, and then you return home. Is there a transformation that occurs, or do you simply return more exhausted than when you set out? Now, that's a quote from one of your characters, but I'm interested in the question the meaning of travel rather than the purpose. What is the meaning of travel? It's an opportunity to encounter the other and to encounter the self and to get perspective on one's place in life. Well, your narrator is never named, but he serves a purpose as a sounding board in many ways for so many other travellers. He talks about a reinvention, but he is really the touchstone for a lot of others to transform themselves. He's a classic listener. Uh, I did a Bachelor of Education in Counselling and I'm very familiar with that role of listening to other people. I, I used to be a freelance journalist and I did a lot of interviews and I loved uh, actually turning on the tape recorder and saying, tell me about yourself. And then after 90 minutes, I could just turn off the tape recorder and there'd be a lot there. Well, your narrator is travelling across Europe. But who he meets and what people discover about themselves is actually more important than the locations they come across. Very true. The, the locations aren't that important. There's a bit of colour, but it's not about the locations, about getting away from uh, one's own territory, being extraterritorial, so you can get a better perspective on self and on the other. In the very first section... There's a group of people moving from Spain into France, but they actually end up going nowhere. Yeah, well, that's based on my lived experience. So when I was traveling in the 80s and the 90s in particular, there'd be endless uh, amounts of strikes, particularly rail strikes, bus strikes, and you could spend a whole day getting nowhere, getting stopped. And uh, But also it's a bit of a homage to one of my favorite uh, writers, Samuel Beckett, uh, Waiting for Godot. And the sense that uh, waiting is life. But it also highlights perhaps one of the main themes in the book, which is really it's not where you are but what you learn along the way. So in going from Spain, trying to get into France and back to where they started from, they're actually encountering each other, learning from each other as they go, and that seems to be the point. Yes, there is a paraphrase of Marcel Proust 
from In Search of Lost Time. And the paraphrase is something like, it's not the destination, but it's the opportunity to see with new eyes. Now, the characters we meet along the way seem slightly displaced, and we can't go into them all, but we first meet Gary and Nancy, who are incompatible, yet they're together. That sounds true to life to me, so it sort of depends on people's experience of life, but uh, that seems very true to life. They've been travelling on and off for 10 years and still haven't really made that discovery about themselves until they meet our narrator and start to talk to him about how they're feeling about their respective travelling partner. Yes, it's their ritual to go to Europe every year, which they do. They have four weeks holiday a year and they go to Europe every year and they go to very similar places. This novel, Travelling Companion, started as a sequel to uh, The Weekly Card Game, which is a novel about repetition, and that is set in East Melbourne, so that is quite local. But in that, there's a table of contents, and um, there are also uh, embedded narratives where people tell stories about themselves. And, of course, we make sense of ourselves in terms of the stories we tell, so we create a narrative. So when we're away, we have more time than usual, and uh, we spin tales. And the normal thing when travellers get together, they say, Uh, There are usually a number of questions. Where have you been? What have you seen? And where are you going? So I think they're, you know, the three main travellers' questions. But David, maybe I could ask you, what did you find the most interesting thing in the novel? I related to this novel in terms of my own travelling experience and how I was taken out of my usual routine and linked up with people I wouldn't have otherwise perhaps normally have spoken to and learnt from them more than anything else. So that was the revelation. There were the, all the locations along the way. The, I did the usual backpacking ritual, but learnt from the people around me, discovered people, broadened my horizons from those encounters with others. But you've mentioned story, and this is what is fascinating because... The travellers along the way tell their own stories. And really, we have a framed narrative, as you say, but it's the travelling within this story, which is a story in itself. Now, I've sort of called it a metaphor, but you've got another way of describing it. We learn from the stories about people and we learn about people and ourselves during this journey. So what is the importance of story here? Oh, well, it's incredibly important. So the, uh, the literary conceit is uh, the stretch travel anecdote. So uh, this is based on my lived experience traveling by myself. When you say doing that train trip, uh, Paris to um, Venice or Paris to Rome, which I've done numerous times, there are a lot of hours to fill and it's a great opportunity to meet people and to talk to people. And people are relaxed. When you're um, traveling on a long train journey, you're actually doing something so you don't feel guilty if you're that type of person. You're actually achieving something. You're covering great distances, but you've got an opportunity to, to listen and you're sort of trapped in this little bubble for a while. So the embedded stories, the extended travel anecdotes, they're a homage to the great works of literature like Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and Boccaccio's The Decameron and more recently Italo Calvino, If on a Winter's Night, A Traveller. So I'd also say that Oral storytelling is is the basis of 
you know, human experience. And it's, it's an incredibly primal thing to do. Before writing came into existence, there were people who told stories. And uh, the most ancient story in lots of ways is going back hundreds of thousands of years or so. And you go from your little village, you go over the hill, you go to another village, you come back to your village and say, I met other people there. They do things differently there. And in a way, that's the, the start of fiction, that encounter with the other. Now, you've made reference to the Cameron, to Chekhov. And what's fascinating here is, apart from the long tradition, they're documenting life in many ways. There's a diversion, as you say. But it also brings out this notion of the human comedy, because Gary asks in the end, what, what's the purpose of, of Chekhov? He can't see the purpose. And yet Chekhov was merely illustrating the human comedy around us. And that, in many ways, is the purpose of story. Absolutely. And I love that phrase from Balzac, the human comedy. So uh, my writing always has a, a mixture of melancholy and a, a mixture of uh, charm and amusement in there as well. And the big Jacobian theme is uh, how do we live? How should we live? And uh, Balzac's Human Comedy is a marvellous series of novels um, pointing up all the foibles of human beings, sort of their virtues and their vices, the splendours and miseries, which was one of the titles of one of the Balzac novels as well. So all that, uh, all that richness is of interest to me. Well, this actually picks up on the ending of the novel where one of the stories is about a philosopher and the lessons he has learned from his journey, so to speak, and there are five of them. Now, we're not going to go into them because the reader and the listener is going to have to find out for themselves. Uh, but also they're in the context of 150,000 words. So some of the reviews, people are pulling sentences out of um, 150,000 word pattern and they're saying this is, you know, this is representative. Uh, every little bit, every sentence speaks to every other bit in the 150,000 words. And it is a pattern. There's a lot of repetition. You're obviously a very good reader. And you would have noticed some of the patterns like the, the recurrence of rings. Did you notice the rings? There are rings. You've also got the notepads. So there are echoes between the stories. But what the philosopher does is, is in many ways sum up what we should be thinking about given all of the stories that have been told over the course of this journey. I don't think it's as prescriptive as that. He's just offering an, another gloss. It's like all the stories are a different bit of a mosaic. You put the mosaics together and you get a pattern. So I'm very interested in structure in writing and very interested in pattern, very interested in repetition as well. Well, if the reader wants to put together pieces of that mosaic, and try and work out what Anthony has in fact created here. They need to read Travelling Companions. The author, as I said, is Anthony Yark, and it's a transit lounge release. So, Anthony, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you very much, David, and thanks for being such an insightful reader. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.